Welcome, everybody, to the 14th episode of the Dunkin' with Dom podcast. I'm your host, once again, Dominic Chapone. Uh, joined again by another lovely guest, a former member, uh, came here on episode five or six, I believe, uh, Mika Goldstein. Mika, welcome back to the pod. Perfect intro, by the way. I am glad to join you again. It's Micah, by the way, but that is a story for another day. Glad to be back talking basketball and everything having to do with the NBA. Let's get into it. I was like, you confused me a lot with the Walking Dead character. So, you know, it's always good that you have that level of fame right now on you. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, well, I want to get started here. Obviously, it's been a crazy couple of days uh, for the NBA. Obviously, the trade deadline has just recently passed, and there's been a lot of movement, and we're still seeing the effects of that right now. Uh, so I want to start with some of the aftermath of the trade deadline. Uh, the first big piece of news, Andre Drummond officially signing with the Lakers, uh, clearing waivers with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and he is now – a uh, member of the Lakers. So uh, what's your reaction to the move and uh, how do you think this helps or hurts LA? Right. So one of the things that I thought was very interesting with this move is the fact that he was a bio guy. Drummond, 27 years old, basically right in the prime of his career. When we think of bio guys, for example, LaMarcus Aldridge, who we'll probably get into uh, when it comes to talking about the Brooklyn Nets. A lot of those guys are players who are past their prime and are guys that are on high level contracts for players that are not able to live up to that contract. But Drummond's a guy who is basically a walking 17 and 13 a night. But one of the things that I think often gets overlooked with him is that he might be the single largest waste of space in the entire NBA. Among players who have taken at least a hundred layups, including all centers, he ranks dead last in field goal percentage. So him shooting 14% below league average, especially for a center at the rim, is really concerning. But how it translates into the size versatility and some of the different lineups that the Lakers will be able to throw onto the floor, it kind of mirrors some of those teams that they had last year when they were to uh, be able to throw out JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard on the floor so that they were able to dominate at the rim defensively and crash the boards. Drummond's going to be able to bring that element to the team. My biggest question, and it's more of a concern for the Lakers, is whether or not he'll be on the floor at the end of games because Drummond has played in a total of eight playoff games in his career, hasn't won a single one of them, and is shooting a crisp 36% at the line for his playoff career. I don't necessarily know if the Lakers are going to need a piece like that on the floor at the end of games, but now they have a couple of different options they can go to at that role. If they wanted to go small, they can put Trez at the four and AD can play the five. Or if they needed a guy who can space the floor, kick out and shoot threes in a pick and pop situation, they still have Marcus Gasol, who for the most part has kind of underperformed this year. He's dealt with some injuries as well. But the Lakers, they're obviously taking a gamble on a guy who is known as not really a winner in this league and has never really been in a situation like that. But this is a real opportunity for Drummond to be able to get his career back on track because this season, for example, has been his worst. And like I alluded to earlier, he ranks dead last among centers in terms of finishing ability at the rim. I think that that's something that will be able to be cleared up, but this is more of a defense first move for the Lakers. And their league best defense already uh, hopefully just got better today. 
What say you? Yeah, no, there's a lot to unpack there, obviously. So the first off is I agree with you. Andre Drummond is an interesting case as a buyout guy. Because uh, typically somebody who's bought out, it's either because, A, they're on a team that has a different timeline. So, for instance, they're an older veteran, possibly in a one-year deal. We just saw it the other day with Jeff Teague, where it's like he doesn't fit the Magic's timeline, like developing young players. So they just cut him. Um, it also could be like a young guy who, like, flames out. Or a guy, like you said, who could be on a long-term contract that the team doesn't want to pay anymore, uh, a la Blake Griffin in Detroit. Yep. So I think the problem I think with Andre Drummond obviously was like the big contract. It's a one-year deal around 28 million. Like that's a lot of money to like basically match the contracts with. So it explains a pretty big deal that you honestly are better off just buying him out after Cleveland than uh, trading him away to get, you know, a late, late second that won't be of anything of value. Now, in terms of him on the Lakers, it's interesting because I think it helps the team in the regular season definitely way more than the playoffs. Uh, Cause obviously in the playoffs, you're going to see a lot more AD at the five, uh, some liners where we're going to have Markeith Morris maybe at the five, just like to, you yeah. know, stays the floor more. Uh, Drummond won't be playing, you know, 35 minutes a night. Uh, but in terms of the regular season, though, this is huge for the Lakers. They add functional depth at the center position. They basically have the 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 AD replacement for the next, you know, month or so, because obviously there's questions around him. Um, and I think it's definitely a good piece of business for the Lakers. You'd rather him be on your team than, say, another team. Like, imagine if, you know, Drummond right now was on the Celtics, let's say, or if he found his way, like, I, coincidentally, maybe on Brooklyn. And maybe he decided, hey, I'm going to join the Brooklyn Nets and their loaded roster. So I think this is a good piece of business for the Lakers. It doesn't hurt to have another guy, at, at, especially at center, where Marcus All is getting up there in age. Trez is uh, just one mold of center. You just want a different look out there. But, yeah, I agree with you. It'd be interesting to see how Drummond fits into that uh, timeline come playoff time. Yeah, one more thing uh, on the AD note, actually. AD was seen these past couple of days doing some encore drills and is nearing any day now cleared for full contact. So we could start to see him uh, be rumored as listed as questionable or something like that in the next couple of days. The Lakers uh, are about to go on one of their longest road streaks or uh, road trips of the year. They're going to face some teams that they, quite frankly, are not going to be able to beat without their top two players. But I could uh, easily see Anthony Davis being slotted back into the lineup in the next week or two. Yeah, and that's an interesting case that I'm glad you brought up. Is that I'm interested to see how the Lakers are going to do the rest of this NBA season uh, for a couple of reasons. First, they're currently at the four spot in the Western Conference, but the Jazz are number one right now. And I'd argue that the biggest weakness to the Jazz right now as a contender is both of those LA teams, just in, at least on me. I think that the small four position that Kawhi and PG and LeBron AD are just the two better, best players on the court at a time versus Gobert and Mitchell. So let's say the Jazz, although they're functionally maybe have a better depth, a better system, in the end, superstars more likely than not like can do a good job carrying the team. And I want to see if the Lakers, where they end up in the standings, because they're going to be a case that L.A. might just not make it past three or four. And if they stay at four, now Utah, their goal is obviously, you know, get the one seed, have the home court, avoid both L.A. teams, have one of them knock out each other. But we could see a universe here in which that's not the case. Yeah. So alluding to your point, obviously, the home court advantage, the Jazz have won 18 in a row or uh, 19 in a row at home going for 20 in a row tonight. But the Lakers are going to be a real case to watch here because over these next couple of weeks, without their top two guys, they face some of the best talent in the league. And if they continue to slide down uh, the standings, ultimately, I think that they're going to just slide by and not have to go through the play-in. But if they are in that 6-7 slot versus being in the 4-5 or or potentially in the three, who knows, 
they are going to go obviously through the two three teams which right now are phoenix and la the clippers obviously it'll be basically up to the lakers and essentially their timeline because from lakers sources the way that they have said right now is if game one of a playoff series were tonight Anthony Davis would be playing and LeBron hopefully would be back by around game four uh, or five at that point. So we'll see whether or not they choose to take things slowly when it comes to the return of both of those guys. But as you said, I think that if the Lakers are but going to elevation and winning in Salt Lake City is much easier said than done and no team has won in salt lake city since the first week of the season i want to move on to the next uh, storyline here another bio candidate lamarcus aldridge um there were rumors about him uh, leaning towards signing with miami I ended up going to brooklyn instead uh i just want to talk a little bit about the nets here i think what's the argument you have in terms of them being a quote-unquote super team because i've heard a lot of stuff like oh like this is unfair for the league and uh, this is a bad example moving forward. But I feel like that's a little bit overhyped because, like, some of the guys in their team, like, yes, they're big names, but they're also not, like, in their prime. Like, DeAndre Jordan, this isn't him, like, you know, in 2016. Like, this isn't LaMarcus Aldridge in 2014. Ditto for Blake Griffin. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there are a lot of different ways that you can look at the Brooklyn Nets. The way that I look at them as kind of a cautionary tale for last year's L.A. Clippers you have a lot of different misfit talent and including Kevin Durant, who, by the way, has not played since January. I'm starting to grow a little concerned about his situation, but they have a lot of different guys on this team who are probably going to think that I should be taking at least 15 plus shots. Whereas their top three guys, when all of them are healthy, are going to be taking 50 plus shots per night between the three of them. And a lot of these other guys who have never really been in a role as a legitimate role player or basically the fifth best guy on their own team while they're on the floor, it's going to be something that might take time for them. And this late in the season, I don't necessarily know if that favors them at all. But as you alluded to, they now have four different guys that they can legitimately call their five. Five, if you include Jeff Green, they have Blake Griffin, LaMarcus Aldridge, Nicholas Claxton, and even DeAndre Jordan. I'd, I'd even argue six because sometimes there's lines where Bruce Brown acts like a, exactly. like a linebacker on defense, but then just stands in the corner on offense, which is funny. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Bruce Brown is a guy who is 6'3", six, 6'4", six, and – is playing small ball center and running high screen and roll with uh, James Harden. But I will say when it comes to the Brooklyn Nets, they are going to be the best offense in the NBA. We've seen that so far this season. Basically, regardless of who they throw out into the court, they're going to be able to score 120 on any team. Getting stops for them defensively is the thing that may trip them up ultimately. And the other thing that may trip them up is if they get into a real battle of my turn, your turn with their top three guys and finding odd ways to get some of their other guys going. Because here's the thing, you don't want Blake Griffin taking shots away from Joe Harris and you don't want Joe Harris taking shots away from Kevin Durant. And you don't want Kevin Durant thinking that he is by far the third best player on the team and having Kyrie Irving taking the load of the shots. 
I've never really seen a team be so much of a microwaved championship contender like this. Like it honestly feels like it's instant oatmeal at this point. You just throw the water on and put it in the microwave and bam, you have the title favorites. So right now Vegas would say that they are the title favorites. My personal pick would be the Lakers if the Lakers are still fully healthy by that I would time. I would also pick the Lakers too. But I think that this Brooklyn Nets team right now is the best team in the East, and I would pick them over the Milwaukee Bucks right now, actually, as the second-best team. In terms of the Aldridge signing, I honestly wasn't a big fan of it. I just don't think he, like, he doesn't do much other than provide functional depth in the regular season. Uh, he's, obvi- he's obviously, like, waxing Dwayne on defense. He's basically a cement brick when it comes to that end of the floor. Jakob Pertl took his spot. Yeah, to the point where he basically like, the the Spurs were playing better without him on the court than with him on the court. Um, I don't, I just don't know what he does for this team, honestly. Other than him being a big name, I don't know how it affects them come like playoff time. Other than him, you know, being like a bench, a deep bench five. Um, and I agree with you there. I think I think the problem with this Brooklyn team is that there's just so much that can go like they have a lot of big names, but there's so much that can go wrong for this team. Like Kyrie Irving, for as good as he's been, has had questionable playoff series. Um, Kevin Durant, there's obviously his health problems. There's still a question as to like, what is Brooklyn's start, uh, closing five at the end of games? Do you go Blake Griffin at the five? Do you go with, you know, a bunch of guards and Kevin Durant at the five? Do you have to, you know, like take Joe Harris out of the game and put like somebody else in like a better defender? Is Jeff Green your answer? There's just so many questions with this team that I just don't think, I think the Lakers are the better favorite. I think they have the two best players on the court in that series. I think they have a better functional depth at both like in, on the wings and at center. I just really like them more than the Nets right now. Question for you. If the Nets are going to win the championship, do you think that it is more likely that James Harden wins finals MVP or Kevin Durant? Because one of the things that I think is kind of a cautionary tale for the Brooklyn Nets is if Harden thinks of himself as the best player and he is the one taking the bulk of the shots because Kevin Durant to me is still the second best player in the world when healthy, but it's for the reasons and some of the things that he can do with his offensive skill set. What say you to that? I'd, imagine, I'd probably lean toward Kevin Durant. I just think he's a better all-around player. I think the reason that the team can be good, he elevates your playoff ceiling more than James Harden's. I think James Harden might be, you can argue that James Harden is a better floor raiser but Kevin Durant come playoff time is the more not only impactful player but he's just a he just does so much he cr- can create a shot anywhere on the floor a seven footer who can just shoot from any from two feet all the way to you know 30 feet is just the most valuable asset in the NBA I think that matters in a playoff series and it's a reason why a team is in the finals in the first place yeah absolutely I agree there but I think that's one of the things that we saw during the seven games when Harden KD and Kyrie were all healthy is Kevin Durant was being used the third most on the team behind both of those guards. And while I do think that Kyrie Irving is an all-world talent, obviously, with the handles and the shot and everything that he can do, one of the things that could get them into some trouble is if midway through the fourth quarter, Kevin Durant only has 10 shot attempts because he's not the one who's been getting the ball and Kyrie is the one who has been carrying the team, but they're going to be a tough out no matter what, because there's going to be one game during the series when it's uh, it's Kyrie's game when he drops 40, and then there's going to be one where Harden goes off, and then there will be a couple where Kevin Durant just looks unstoppable. 
they're going to be one of the best chemistry experiments to watch in the league because I honestly don't know what's going to happen. They could be a second round exit to either Philly or Milwaukee, or they could be the NBA champions. Yeah, no, it's definitely going to be an interesting case with Brooklyn, especially come playoff time where their team is headed. Uh, I want to focus now to our next topic here, and obviously the NBA trade deadline recently passed. Uh, and definitely a ton of moves here and a lot of teams to discuss here. I, won't, I don't want to spend too much time on this, uh, but I do want to talk about a couple of the notable teams, just get your opinion on some of the moves, because uh, they're pretty notable. I want to first start with the only all-star that was moved in, Nicole Vucevic. Uh, obviously shipped out to Chicago uh, in exchange for a first-round pick in 21 and 23, and Wendell Carter Jr. Uh, he's, they're all going to Orlando. Um, do you think this is the right gamble for Chicago? So I think that it was more of a move that was geared towards the magic going into rebuild, but on the Chicago side, I think that it is the right move because that's a team that feels like they are headed in the right direction when it comes to Patrick Williams and Kobe white and some of the other guys they have, they're probably a shooter or two away when it comes to really being able to space the floor and getting the most out of the Zach Levine and Nikola Vucevic duo but in terms of stylistic fit for your top two guys, that's about as good as you can possibly ask for because Vooch doesn't need the ball in his hands. He obviously is shooting better than any center right now besides, you know, Carl Anthony Towns. But I think the way that he works well with Zach Levine, either out of a short roll or a pick and pop or any kind of give and go, you can run your offense through him at times, throw it in, uh, to him in the high post because his ability to uh, pass and create uh, with his vision is something that probably went overlooked when he was with Orlando because they just didn't have the other pieces to be able to use around him. Zach Levine this season has perfected his game when it comes to shooting from deep as well as working off ball when Kobe White is the one who is going to dominate the basketball I think that adding another guy like Vooch really elevates this team's ceiling I think that they probably will be a playing team in the Eastern Conference but when I look at them and their ceiling versus a team like Indiana or who knows if Charlotte or the Knicks there are so many teams when it comes to four through maybe 11 in the Eastern Conference that we just quite frankly don't know where they're going to end when it comes to the standings at the end of the season, that's not a team necessarily that I would want to see if I am Philly in the first round is a team that can actually take away the paint and space you out and play five man offense. But from a magic standpoint as well, I think that it was probably the right move. Obviously they had Aaron Gordon and Evan Fournier, which were also moved they decided to move out their three best players and understood that they are going to become one of, if not the worst teams in the league. I think that from a long-term standpoint, they are going to be able to get back Markel Fultz and Jonathan Isaac next season. And those are probably the two best players that are now on their roster. And that's who they're going to build around. How about you? No, I agree with you there. I think that I like this move, honestly, for both sides. I think if you're Orlando, you were stuck in the NBA purgatory of, you know, winning 35 to 40 games and you weren't really going anywhere. So I think they sold high on their best player. I think they got back a pretty decent package. Like Wendell Carter, when healthy, is like a pretty decent quality center who's got a little bit of upside as like, you know, the – 
the modern five everyone wants to have on their team. Uh, and the assets they got are pretty decent too with the first round picks. And if you're Chicago, I mean, like, that's a pretty good team right now. Obviously, there's like a couple more holes in the roster. I think they need another, like, small, like a three and D wing. I think they definitely need a point guard, like an actual floor general, like not a Kobe White, but more of like a, like more of a Rajon Rondo, like in prime no type, problem. like just a p- pure playmaker can set his other guys up just an adult in the room. Like maybe honestly, like a Kyle Lowry, like if that was the archetype of their point guard, that would be pretty cool. Um, but I really like this move for both sides. Uh, there's obviously a big question as to whether, um, how, what's the ceiling for this Bulls team. Uh, after all, their two best players are all offense, no defense guys. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, especially can Bucevic keep this production up? Cause he's only at, a, uh, he's already 30 years old. And he's got three more years left under that contract. So he'll be aging into his mid-30s. Um, but I really like this move for Chicago. I think um, it'll be interesting to see how they do toward the rest of the season. They're only a couple games out of like the eight, nine, seven range. So it's not like they're too far off. It, it, I'm agreeing with you there. If that was like my first round opponent, I would be pretty startled not to like, you know, lose the series, but like that's not an easy team to face. No, absolutely. If you're Philly or Brooklyn or Milwaukee, whichever of those three teams winds up with the one seed, that's not necessarily the team that you want to see in the first round. Granted, you are going to be able to score probably at will on them. They're going to be able to keep up with you. And I would rather face uh, Indiana or who knows if Washington goes on some kind of crazy run at the end of the season. They are a team that seems to always hover around the 10 or 11 range and with the play-in who knows Boston this season has been consistently inconsistent every time they win three in a row they lose the next three uh we'll probably get into the heat as well who are facing a rough stretch again but that uh that four through 10 or 11 range in the Eastern Conference is totally up in the air and Basically, any of those teams could finish anywhere in that range. Let's move on to the next team here. You just mentioned them real briefly, but obviously the Miami Heat were big players at this NBA trade deadline. Uh, not only did they acquire Victor Oladipo for basically nothing, but they basically got uh, Nemanja Bielitsa and Trevor Ariza for also basically nothing. Um, I just want to read over what the terms are here because they the Heat really did well at this deadline. Not only did they get back three quality rotation players, but basically almost giving up nothing. So here, just to like – to summarize it, they not only acquired those three players, but the only people they gave up were Avery Bradley, who's on a one-year deal and has missed the entire year, Myers Leonard, who's away from the team, Chris Silva, who's basically been an end-of-the-bench guy, Kelly Olenek, who's been like a, a quality rotation player, but nothing absolutely insane. He's like, you know, an eighth man like your finals team here or there. Uh, a 2022 first-round swap with Houston, which is not going to be a big deal because Houston's going to have uh, the worser uh, draft odds. So, like, this isn't going to affect Miami at all. And then a second round pick, you know, seven years down the road. This is really a really good bargain for Miami here. Yeah, this is as good as you could possibly ask for, because I think what Miami was really missing was another 20 point per game scorer that doesn't need the ball in his hands and can move without the basketball. One of the things that I think you can obviously talk more to is Bam Adebayo's improved passing this season. Victor Oladipo has been trying to get to Miami basically since his first year as a pacer uh, a while ago. And now that he's finally there, I fully expect him to get back to some of the Thunder days where he's able to work through back screens, backdoor cuts, and some of the other things that he's able to add to his game, not only off the dribble, but on catch and shoots and pull-ups. 
this season has been kind of up and down for him when it comes to his shooting, but that's really the only thing that is kind of in question. And there's so much variability uh, about a person or a player's shot in today's game that I think that he's fully capable of getting back to the OKC and Indiana days when Victor Oladipo looked like one of the best shooting guards in the league. That's probably the thing that Miami was missing because Jimmy Butler is going to be able to put the team on his back when he needs to, but there's the full 48 minutes that you have to keep up with, you know, Brooklyn, even Milwaukee this season, which I think is much improved from last season's roster and Philadelphia and some of those other teams, including potentially Boston, if they're able to get back on track. Yeah, the one piece I want to talk about here is I think Victor Oladipo just brings a new dimension to this Heat team. I think one of the biggest weaknesses for Miami uh, was perimeter defense. Obviously, the rotation of Drogic, Hero, Duncan Robinson, and none. Just none of those guys are – they're at best above average defenders, and at worst, they're one of the worst defenders in the entire league. So I think he provides a little bit of that. He also provides just an athletic guard that can, you know, slash – create off the dribble, but also not be a ball dominant player, someone who can know his role within the offense. Uh, and the fact that they got him for basically nothing. I mean, Kelly Olenek isn't anything too crazy. Um, the, the first round pick to give was basically of no value. And it'll be interesting to see how Victor Oladipo, like what his role is on this team. Cause you can make a case that he could be a six man that gives you 25 minutes off the bench. He could be a starter and then play in close games. Um, it'll be interesting to see what Spo, uh, Coach Spo does with uh, him in terms of starting lineup, closing lineup, how many minutes he plays. Do you want him playing uh, some minutes where he's just by himself as the lone creator on offense? Do you want times where he's just off the ball? Um, will he be guarding more of the point guard types or more of the bigger wing guys? Like stuff along those lines. So, yeah, as you brought up, obviously, I think that the best. I think that the best lineup that Miami can go with right now when it comes to switchability and some of their size versatility defensively is keeping a guy like Tyler Hero or Duncan Robinson on the floor, but also surrounding them with other uh, versatile defenders. So I would go with Victor Oladipo, Duncan Robinson, Jimmy Butler, Trevor Ariza, and Bam Adebayo, which by the way, Trevor Ariza also basically got him for nothing. And the amount of upside that he brings to a team is awesome because he's a winner, he's a champion, and he's a guy that has basically done nothing but play well off the ball and is able to switch one through four. So just having another athlete defensively, I think, really helps this lineup and is able to fill some of that void that Jay Crowder was able to give the team last year. And quite frankly, Andre Iguodala is just not that anymore. Yeah, Trevor Reese is definitely the wild card, I think, out of this whole trade deadline because he has an interesting career. So obviously last season he started in Sacramento, didn't really shoot the ball well, was a bit lazy on defense, gets straight to Portland, has a career renaissance, uh, making like over 40% of his three-pointers looking like the old self, then doesn't go to the bubble at all, and then gets traded to Oklahoma City then hasn't played a whole a game once this season. So obviously this has worked for the Heat in the past. Last year when they traded for Andre Iguodala, he didn't play a game with Memphis and he ended up being, you know, like the six or seven most important guy on our roster. Um, so it'd be interesting to see if he can, we can say, if we see a little uh, history repeating itself with the Riza. Uh, the one I'm interested in is obviously the uh, 
Nemanja Bialica piece. I feel like for him, for basically at nothing, he could be a small ball five uh, in close games. He could be a starter in the regular season, you know, just to be a spacer on the floor. Like this Heat team is very versatile. It's got different switchability in terms of lineups. It's got, uh, it could play up tempo, a slow tempo. It's got shot creators. It's got three point shooters. It's got basically the whole package ready to go. Yeah. I like what you bring up there with Bialica. I think Precious Achua long-term is probably the guy that they're going to have playing those minutes. But while he's still in the uh, developmental phase of his career, they bring in Bialica to be able to fill that void. He's not necessarily a shot blocker or rim protector, but he's more of a position defender. I think that if you throw another guy in there who's able to keep their hands up and contest shots and honestly lead guys right into Bam Adebayo, that just forces teams into misses. And that's one one of the things that has separated this Miami Heat team from last year's team, honestly, is their improved paint versatility. And when you got a guy like Jimmy Butler as your quarterback, you're going to be able to do great things. I want to focus on two more topics here. So the first one of which is actually a pretty uh, interesting one. Uh, three different teams here traded for three very impact players who can act as, you know, part of a closing five here. Uh, Milwaukee, uh, very early on in the deadline, acquired P.J. Tucker for practically nothing. Uh, Philadelphia, 76, toward the end of the deadline, opted to not trade for Kyle Lowry and instead sign or uh, acquire George Hill instead. And then Denver Nuggets, uh, in basically giving up nothing, acquired Aaron Gordon from the Magic. Uh, which of those players do you think has the most impact and the most upside to, you know, uh, helping those teams out in the long term, especially come playoff time? So out of those three, I'm going to go with Aaron Gordon to Denver. He really is the replacement to Jeremy Grant, shout out Hughes, of course, that they really needed, quite frankly. Him being able to step in and take Paul Millsap's minutes while Millsap, who is still a starting level player, is coming off the bench is huge for them. Because you add another defender, defensive-minded player who is obviously an athlete and is able to space the floor and shoot the three, when you have a guy who doesn't need to have the ball in their hands but can still cut, slash, set screens, and do all the other little things offensively, playing alongside unselfish players like Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray, they're going to be able to have one of the best starting fives and one of the best offenses in the league. They already before they had him were among the league's best offensively. He only raises their ceiling on that end. And defensively, it's just another guy that you can throw out uh, at some of these versatile wings that you're going to be able to have to guard in the Western Conference, like a Kawhi and PG or even LeBron, because Michael Porter Jr. this season, we know what he can do. He's kind of an all-world talent when it comes to shooting, uh, offensively but he has also become an improved defender over this last month or so post all-star break as well and it's turned this Denver Nuggets team into somewhat of a juggernaut and a team that I as a jazz fan quite frankly do not want to see in the second round I'm actually going to push back a little bit here I actually think the PJ Tucker signing might be a little bit more important um, just because I think it gives Milwaukee a closing five. I think the biggest question for Milwaukee as a contender is that what is, with five minutes left to go in a game, the five players that are going to be on the court? 
I feel like that spot has now been clarified. I think PJ Tucker brings a, an actual three and D wing who can guard the one through five position. He's somebody who has veteran experience in the playoffs, which Milwaukee doesn't have. All of their guys have been in playoff shortcomings, but PJ Tucker's arguably, arguably the best guy you could have gotten on the market besides maybe Kyle Lowry in terms of bringing veteran experience and postseason experience to your roster. I'm really liking the PJ Tucker thing, but with that said, I actually do, I do agree with you on all the fronts with uh, the Nuggets. I think Aaron Gordon provides a lot of versatility. He basically replaces the Jeremy Grant spot. He's insurance in case Paul Mills have ages in the playoffs like he did last year against the Lakers, and that's in that conference finals um, series. He provides um, an option to be at a small ball five, so you don't have to play um, Isaiah Hardenstein, who's no longer on the team, or JaVale McGee if he's starting to struggle, continue to struggle. Um, he just brings a, and also a sense of athleticism. I think Denver was really lacking like that go-to athlete who can just run up and down the court, you know, run the floor, uh, catch alley-oops. Denver really didn't have that on the roster. I think Aaron Gordon definitely provides a new dimension here. And then obviously I think the most underrated piece is probably the George Hill one. I think George Hill, you can make a case he might be in the closing lineup of a game. Uh, at the very least, he'll be a very good sixth man off the bench for Philly, uh, giving you, you know, 25 minutes a night. He was obviously a very good three-point shooter. Hasn't played much this year. He's missed, of course, like the last like over, I think, two months or at least a month for sure with like a hand problem, was on Oklahoma City. They weren't going to play him that much. So, yeah, I'm mean, very interested to see how these three players will definitely contribute to those rosters, uh, especially coming to the playoffs. Yeah, so a couple of things on the P.J. Tucker note. He's hit more corner threes than any other player in the league over the last three seasons. And to me, the best closing lineup that Milwaukee can throw out would be Honestly, there are three best guys, which is going to be Giannis, Chris Middleton, and Drew Holiday. Then I would go with P.J. Tucker and Brooke Lopez, although there could be the argument for they're going to stick with their starting five, which is going to include Dante DiVincenzo offensively and some of the things that he's able to do to opposing guards. Adding P.J. Tucker and then their very newest acquisitions that would have happened over the last 24 hours, which includes Austin Rivers and Jeff Teague, I think that they are starting to round into the complete team that they were on paper last season. But obviously we can talk about Drew Holiday and some of the things that he can do in pick and roll and obviously what he brings defensively. I think that if you have Brooke Lopez, Drew Holiday, Giannis Santetokounmpo, Chris Middleton, and P.J. Tucker, you have five guys on the floor who are all pluses if not all defensive level players so that's one of the things that is really the Bucks identity which is being one of the best defenses alongside one of the best offenses in the league it's one of the reasons why they were such a damn good point differential and net rating team last season I think that the P.J. Tucker addresses uh, the P.J. Tucker move obviously addresses some of those experience issues and another voice in the locker room that they were maybe missing. I really like it from the Milwaukee standpoint. And I think that the Jeff Teague move that they made a couple of hours ago will be able to fill that DJ Augustine void that they gave up when they got PJ Tucker. I want to focus on one last NBA topic here. Obviously, when we did our pod, oh, we focused on the MVP conversation. Ever since then, it has gone to a tailspin. Uh, Joe Embiid out with injury, LeBron James out with injury. Uh, the Harden move has been really working well for Brooklyn right now. Uh, I just want to read over the MVP odds here and then just like do a little bit of discussion regarding that. Um, so as of right now, Nikola Jokic currently favored to win the MVP at a minus 125. 
Uh, after that, we have Harden and Embiid at plus 700, LeBron at plus 750, Giannis at plus 850, Dame at plus 1200, Luka plus 1600, and then Kawhi plus 5500. Uh, so I guess first off, do you think Jokic is the runaway MVP right now, given the injuries to both uh, LeBron and Embiid? So I wouldn't say that he's the runaway MVP like minus 125 would suggest. If I were to place a bet right now, I would place a bet on Damian Lillard. Although I do think that LeBron, some of the things that he has been able to accomplish over his career, if there's no player that really steps up over the next month or so and claims the award based on their play over that span of time, I think that voters could talk themselves into ultimately giving him the award. But with obviously the continued absence to him and Joel Embiid, they have otherwise eliminated themselves from the conversation. I don't think that Nikola Jokic would be the runaway MVP. If I were to vote on somebody right now, I would probably vote for Nikola Jokic. But if I were to bet on somebody to win it by the end of the season, I think that Dame Lillard will be able to claim that award. One of the things that Nikola Jokic has done this season is taken his scoring and shooting ability to another level. Basically, he's continued his dominance from the bubble and he's going to set the record or if not tie Wilt's record for the most amount of assists a player a center has had during a season while given 27 and 11 he is easily the best offensive center in the game and I would say that he's the best center hands down he is having one of the best offensive seasons a player has ever had regardless of position he could break Bill Walton's record for double-doubles over the last 50 years. But I think ultimately, I think he is probably not going to win it. I don't think that voters will be able to talk themselves into that due to seeding in the Western Conference because the only player who has won the award without a top three seed in either conference over the last 38 years was Russell Westbrook. And voters that season were not going to give it to Russ unless he secured the 30-10-10 triple-double season that we hadn't seen since Oscar. So in terms of a historical uh, aspect, I think that's why Jokic has a huge edge when it comes to the betting odds right now. But I don't know if I would necessarily bet on him to win it by season end. Yeah, first off with the MVP race, so a lot of just a lot to unpack there. So obviously, first off, you bring up a good point. Um, for like the last 40 years or so, every MVP, there's been basically a first, second, or third seed on like their team. His other team's like one of those spots in the top East or West. Um, they're the, even like the Westbrook thing, while they were only a six seed, it was all narrative based. Like, oh, they he had triple-double, triple-double hasn't happened since Oscar, all that stuff. So I think that's a big part of it. The one I'm interested in is the James Harden piece of all of this, because I, I'm wondering like, Will voters punish Harden for what happened earlier in the year? Or are we just going to completely forget about that? Because I'm not, I just don't think an MVP should be a guy who just, you know, like completely gave up on his previous team, didn't give, you know, 100% effort, and then just moved to and basically forced his way out of town. Um, so I'm very interested to see how voters will react to that, obviously. I'm also interested to see how uh, people deal with Giannis in terms of the MVP discussion. He's putting up better numbers than he did last year. The Bucs are only two games out of the first spot in the East. I mean, if the Bucs are the first seed and they're the runaway team that's not Utah, uh, I, you, can, you can make a case Giannis could probably win the MVP too. 
Yeah, that's going to be something to really keep an eye on the rest of this season, as well as James Harden, because I think a lot of their case is going to come down to where they finish in the race. Obviously, the narrative side of the MVP, which is a huge role in this award every year, Giannis has won it back-to-back years and his team hasn't come through in the playoffs and James Harden would become the first player to ever win the award while playing on two different teams in the same season. I don't think that Harden will be able to win that award because of it. I would give a better chance though to Giannis at this point because he has taken his game to another level as you uh, mentioned And there's a strong case that he might be the best defensive player in the league, even if he's not going to repeat as defensive player of the year. Him holding other teams to 14% below league average at the rim, I think is something that really can't be overlooked. And his ability to honestly create more so uh, in a high pick and pop uh, situation is something that he's added to his game this season. The Harden case is really hard to explain because I think (laughs) he may be playing the best basketball of his career at this point, but it's a completely different James Harden than we've seen over the last few seasons with Houston. And then there's the other thing with Harden. It's, well, he's been playing at this level for the last few seasons and all we heard was that he'll never win a championship. You'll never be able to win playing like that. Well, he's still dribbling at a similar rate. He's only showing off his passing skills and some of the only, some of the other things that he can do as a point guard, not necessarily as more of a combo guard. I think voters will not be able to talk themselves into voting Harden unless there are continued injuries or some of the other things that come into play. Dame and Jokic, I think are probably the two players that would be leading the discussion unless Embiid, who could be back uh, in a week or two, if we're sticking to the same timeline that people thought it would be when he first got injured, he could still come back and win the award pretty easily. But Dame, Jokic, and Embiid are really the only three guys that we're talking about here who haven't won it before. And I don't know if voters will be able to talk themselves into it similar to Giannis with Harden when it comes to some of the playoff mishaps and shortcomings over the last few years yeah I think this is the first time in my lifetime that for like in an NBA season there is no over halfway through the year we don't have a clear like top two or three in the MVP standings I think every candidate has a bunch of pros but then but then major major cons that affect their argument like if you look at Jokic for instance a great player awesome stats but they're only in sixth place in the western conference and have basically been so inconsistent all year uh, if you look at James Harden you can make case he has the most well-rounded case but then you have to factor in the early part with the Rockets um where basically he made that team the way they are now which is a bottom team in the western conference I think that matters and beating LeBron both have put up great numbers for awesome contenders, but then again, they've also missed extended time. Uh, Kawhi Leonard's had an underrated case, you can argue, but then again, the Clippers aren't doing fantabulous either. Uh, and then guys like Dame and Luca are putting up great numbers, but their teams also aren't, you know, like lighting the world on fire. And then, of course, there's a Giannis case where the narrative around him is that you can't award him with back-to-back to you can't put him in the same conversation as Larry Bird or Bill Russell because at least those guys won titles and he hasn't. So it'll be interesting right. to see how this like develops out toward the rest of the year. I I lean toward it being 
Uh, I still think Embiid's my MVP. I just think that he is the best two-way player in the NBA, at least arguably. I think he's the biggest reason why Philly is out in the first place uh, uh, currently. Because, I mean, after all, I don't think that roster is, like, necessarily really that good. Um, I think the other candidates that can probably win, I think Jokic is a really good argument just because of the dominance he's having. I think James Harden certainly is a good guy. And I agree with you. I think even Dame, if the Blazers, you know, make it to the three seed or second seed, maybe he can have a case too. So it'll have to be interesting to see how this plays out toward the rest of the year. It will. Yeah. The thing with the Dame case, I think that is kind of under the radar is just the amount of injuries that his team has gone through. He was able to keep them afloat in a quite frankly stacked Western conference without CJ and Nurk. Who, by the way, to to pause you there, McCollum has basically missed over a month of the year and just came back. Nurkic has basically missed the whole year, and the Blazers are still forcing the Western Conference. Like, that's pretty impressive. Or they're basically like one game out of the force. That's pretty good. Yeah, it is. And him really solidifying himself as the most clutch player in the league, I think, is something that voters will probably shed more light on. And just the fact that he kind of has this swirling cloud over him as the most disrespected player in the league. I don't know if he'll ever have a better chance to win the award this season than when there are injuries, maybe helping his case to some other guys that would otherwise be ahead of him. That's not something that obviously Dame would like to know that maybe his MVP has some kind of asterisk next to it, but it's right. You're right. We're like 45 plus games into the season. There's no clear cut MVP at this point, even though the, odds makers would tell you that it's clearly Nikola Jokic. It'll be a really fun last third of a season to see where this thing plays out because honestly, this could be one of those MVP races that comes down to the final couple of weeks of the season where voters are looking at themselves and they're like, we don't know who to put on our ballot. So we'll just basically look to see during the final fourth quarter of the season and see who is the best player over that span. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining the pod. Yeah, thank you. Always glad to have me on the pod. I enjoy talking basketball, especially with people who think highly of the game. Yeah, no, we'll definitely have you on, especially toward the end of the year. I want to definitely have you on for, you know, some of those playoff previews and all that stuff. Um, well, anyway, thank you so much. Uh, for those of you who haven't tuned in yet, new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday, Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Uh, thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your day.